And that's what we're going to see tonight. Let me, uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for um, your word, even passages that, honestly, if it was up to me, uh, I probably wouldn't have recorded this one. Uh, but you are not ashamed of it. You, your character is true and holy and loving and good. And so I pray that it would shine through, even in this difficult passage, and you would draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not yours at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they, were car- and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared, dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. The grass withers, flowers fade, word of our God stands forever. All right, what do we, uh, what do, we do with this? Uh, three things. We're going to look at the practice of hypocrisy. Then we're going to look at the damage of hypocrisy. And then the, the healing of hypocrisy. First, practice of hypocrisy. This passage is shocking. It's unnerving. As we've walked through Acts, if you've been with us so far, we have seen amazing things. We have seen uh, Jesus ascend into heaven. We have seen ton- uh, pillars of fire appear over people's heads at Pentecost and people talk in foreign languages. We, last week we saw a man healed who was, who was born a paralytic. And this is amazing. But it's amazing in a different sense. right? It's, it's terrifying. Because two people drop dead. Which is amazing, but hard to stomach. And it's got to make you ask, what in the world? Like, what brings this kind of response from God? And Luke includes before this, this terrifying event, this little account about Barnabas and what's going on in the church. And that's important, because it's going to help us understand what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. 
Because what you see is the early church in Barnabas, they're, they're doing what happens when the Spirit of God shows up and people are converted. They're starting to become like Jesus, which means they're sacrificial in their giving. The, the, the needs of the poor are being met. And then you have this man named Barnabas who sells his field, brings the money from the field, lays it at the apostles' feet so that it can be distributed to all who, have, who all uh, are in need. And Barnabas is, is recognized. Right? He's called son of encouragement. He's greatly popular. He's deeply loved. And right after that, this, this is why it comes right here. You've got to imagine Ananias and Sapphira watch what is going on. They see the accolades of popularity that Barnabas is getting. They see the high esteem. And they think, we'll do the same thing. And they sell their field. They lay the money at the apostles' feet. Except what happens? Verse 2, when they see the money, and I don't know if they always plan to keep it back, or when they saw the amount of money they actually had, they thought, whoa, that's a lot. Uh, we'll just keep back from ourselves. Nobody will ever know. And they present it as if that's everything, as if that's all they had. And that's what's important. Ananias and Sapphira are not being judged because they didn't give all their money in one sense. They're not being judged because of a lack of generosity. Right? Peter states in verse 4, it was your property. You, you could have sold it or not sold it. You, and then after you sold it, you could have distributed it how, how you wanted. The problem was not a lack of generosity. The problem was, verse 4, the lie. You lied to the Holy Spirit. It's hypocrisy that they outwardly presented to the, to the community and to the apostles one thing, that we are giving everything, but secretly behind closed doors, it's not what they were doing. So their judgment, that's why I want you to hear, it was not because of a lack of generosity that we should be generous. It was because of a lack of integrity. Spiritual hypocrisy. What does it mean to be a hypocrite? Right? This is when, ready, I'm going to take you back to elementary school, your grammar and your math are about to come together. Okay, This is going to be amazing. Integrity comes from the word integer. Right? That's the root word. What is an integer? An integer is a whole number. Right? A number without fractions. My math major is very proud of me right now. It is a number without fractions. What does it mean to have integrity? It's to be a whole person. It means you're not fractured. It means you're not one thing around this group of people and then a whole other thing around this group of people. See, that's being fractured. Having integrity means that I'm the same. That what you see on the outside is what I am on the inside. You've lost the fakeness. And see, what Ananias and Sapphira do is they pose outwardly as being very spiritual and very generous when inwardly they're just not. And so outwardly they appear to want God's honor, but what they want is their own honor. Right? That's what's going on. It is simulated holiness. It is caring for people. And so they're fractured. They want people to think that they're more spiritual and more generous and more godly than they actually are. They weren't giving for the poor. 
They were giving for their own ego and reputation. That's what's going on. And now is when Ananias and Sapphira gets a little uncomfortable, right? Because now you begin to realize that like we all share an Ananias and Sapphira sin if you claim to be a Christian. Because any time we share an Ananias and Sapphira sin, any time that we try to make people think that we are something that we are not, any time we present ourselves to other people to make them think that we are more spiritual or more, more holy than we actually are, that's the lack of integrity. And this is, like, this is unnerving, right? How much spiritual posturing really goes on in your life. Honestly. Like how much of the like social media posting of like Bible verses and Instagrams about the great night of worship that I had and I I don't know people's hearts, okay? But how often are we trying to present ourselves as some, some kind of spiritual thing that we're actually not? That we hold that out as our public image, and at the same time, the guy who lives on your hall, you don't even know his name, and he thinks that you hate him. Right? Something's conflicting there. How much of spiritual posturing is happening in your own home? When you go home for the weekend and you talk to your parents about your spirituality in a way at college that is not even close to what reality is. And it's convicting to me. Like I'm a pastor. Right? I'm supposed to be good at this. And when I really think, man, how much of my life is driven? Because I want people to think that I'm spiritual. And not because I actually love Jesus and love others. Like how much of your life is this personal PR campaign where you try to present this face that I pray more than I do? That I care about you more than I do. That I care about justice more than I actually do. That my life is together more than I actually have it together. That is what is going on here. And look, if you are trying to figure out Christianity tonight and you're examining it, part of me wanted to apologize for this text. I'm not going to. Like, this is God's word. And it does make us uncomfortable sometimes. But this is the revelation of God's character that He is loving and holy and just and good. But here's the, here's the thought I want to deposit to you though, if you're, if you're figure, trying to figure out Christianity. Doesn't the hypocrisy of Christians drive you crazy? Honestly. Like, isn't that one of the things that might be the barrier that's keeping you from Jesus? At least consider that God Himself doesn't like it either. He doesn't. And so first, this is the practice of hypocrisy. Second of all, the damage of it. Okay, if you stuck with me so far and you're looking and saying, well, yikes, I do see the hypocrisy and I see it in my own life. I think you then still say, yeah, but like, they got struck dead immediately. That That seems a little over the top. What's the big deal? And here's what I think is interesting. Like, as we walk through Acts, there is all kinds of sin that we're going to see. All right, next week, we're going to look when the religious leaders, they actually murder Stephen. 
for being a Christian. They pick up stones and murder him. And none of them drop dead. How, how can these people be murdering somebody and they don't drop dead? Yet this, this sin of hypocrisy, they drop dead. Well, look at verse 3. This is what Ananias says. I mean, this is what Peter, Peter asks him. He says, why has Satan to Ananias filled your heart? What does that mean? He's not saying, right, this isn't like the devil made me do or something like that. But he is saying something more is going on than you can see. There are these spiritual forces that are at work. There is this real figure named Satan who is very powerful. He's a fallen angel who hates God and hates grace and hates the church. And what's going on here is he's trying to destroy it. And look, if you read through Acts, you'll realize there are two or three ways that Satan always tries to destroy the church. One is just outward physical persecution. That he will, through fear and saying this will cost you your life, this will make you know, this will hurt you. Well, we'll see next week. That's one of the things that he does. But the strange thing about Acts, anytime, and actually, if you look at church history, whenever people persecute Christians, like really persecute, not like American persecution, which isn't happening, I promise, right? Like real persecution, the church grows. Like it, it just keeps growing. But there's a second way. And it's inside the church. The second way that Satan destroys the church is through inward corruption. And it's much more damaging. And when God's people become hypocritically two-faced. Right, if you, um, if you love to bike, you might know this, uh, this little fact. that if you have like a steel frame bike... One of the things that they'll warn you against is painting that bike yourself. Because a steel bike frame, right, it's hard. It's, it's, uh, it can, it can kind of take a beating. Like, you can even crash it, things can run into it, and it might be dented, but it's still a little hold up. But they tell you to be careful about painting, because if you paint it, what can happen is it might trap moisture in it. And you might never see this. But as moisture is in there, it starts corroding it on the inside with rust. And what may happen is you're riding along on the bike thinking that everything is fine, and they call it a catastrophic failure, and the frame snaps because it corroded from the inside out. Right? That's a horrifying picture. Um, but go with the analogy. A steel frame can sustain these blows from the outside, but once corrosion starts from the inside, it falls apart. That's what's going on here. As you see the kingdom of Jesus moving through his church, it seems unstoppable. Yet, when inward corruption starts creeping up, it's like it's so dangerous that that God just ends it right there. It says, I'm not going to let this go. Not while my church is starting out. It's way too important. And he puts an end to it immediately. And isn't that interesting? That when hypocrisy is removed... Do you know this? By the end of chapter 15, what's happening? People are being converted left and right. I don't, that's not what I would have thought of happening. But people are coming in. So why is hypocrisy of Christians, of us, if you're a Christian tonight, so damaged, so corrosive? Two things. First, to fake spirituality, to posture that you have it all together, that you don't struggle with sin, it twists the gospel. 
Because we've seen over and over again in Acts in the whole Bible that the gospel means good news. That what saves you is Jesus' work, not your own performance. That we are saved not by how well I kill sin, but we're saved by the fact that Jesus died for my sin. That I'm saved not by my record of obedience and how well I've done this week, but I'm saved by Jesus' perfect record of righteousness and obedience in my place. And so Jesus' salvation comes to, and only comes to, messed up, broken, helpless sinners. But when spiritual posturing and faking starts going on, it twists the gospel. And it says to people, the only way to get in with Jesus is to be good. And that's a lie. It's a complete lie. It says the way to be a part of the church and to be saved is to have your life together, but that's the very thing that will make you miss Jesus. Because Jesus is a God of grace. And see, Satan is a master manipulator. He's always about control and power. Satan doesn't believe in grace. And so Satan wants you to think this. You cannot trust Jesus with your sin. You can't. You can't trust Jesus with your shame. So you've got to manipulate him. You've got to take it in your own hands and you've got to pretend that you're better than you are. And that's the thing that will make you miss the gospel. What will keep salvation at bay is refusing to believe that Jesus loves the real you. He does. That's why what was read for us is 1 John where it says, if we say we have no sin, we are a liar. And what he ends up saying is it will actually destroy fellowship with each other. But as we walk in the light, as we're honest about who we are, we will discover real fellowship with each other and we'll realize that God is in us. And so first, it makes a mockery of the gospel. But second of all, it kills real community. Because real friendship is it's built on trust and honesty. You know this. If you don't trust a person... You just don't have a relationship with them. And the Christian community is supposed to be the place where you finally, finally have found a place where you can take off the mask and people love the real me. And the Christian community helps you believe that Jesus loves the real me because you love the real me. And I don't have to fake it anymore. I'm telling you, that is, that is somewhat what is going on in our generation of why people who struggle with homosexuality, they run from the church and they find places of acceptance in the uh, LGBTQ community because they finally feel like I can be honest and somebody knows me. You see, the church is supposed to be the place that you can say, this is who I am. And, it, and look, Jesus doesn't prove it, but we bring you in as you are and love you there. But we've distorted it. And if there's spiritual fakeness, if no one is struggling in the, in, the, in the community of Christians, then what it makes people feel like is, I guess I can't be honest either. All right, if the only thing that is being talked about in your community of friends, if you're a Christian, is the... 
is the stuff that writes easy to talk about, my my pride, my lack of Bible reading, then what's going to begin to happen is everybody's going to wear their mask. Everybody. Everybody's going to wear the mask of righteousness, the mask of I'm good, and what they'll end up being is no honesty, no no repentance, no believing that Jesus loves me, and the sin won't disappear. It'll just go underground. I promise. And it'll be corroded from the inside out. Spiritual hypocrisy. I, I, I'm stealing from my friend Way Rutherford, who's camp minister at uh, Baylor. Spiritual hypocrisy works like the AIDS virus. You know how AIDS works, right? AIDS doesn't actually kill you. That horrific disease. What it does is it kills your immune system. So that, what ends up killing you is like a common cold or something else that normally wouldn't. Look, real Christian community is our immune system. That's the thing that's supposed to protect us and keep us honest and keep us believing that repentance is alive and that Jesus loves the real me. But when hypocrisy comes in, it's like AIDS. It removes the protection of real, trustworthy community. And it just leaves you isolated from everybody. And it starts corroding from the inside out. And it says this, you've got to start faking it. Which is how the world works. And so you go back to manipulating people. And you're being shriveled up on the inside. And so spiritual hypocrisy really is this damaging, is this dangerous. Here's the one application. Might it not be worth asking somebody for help? Perhaps you should go to a trusted friend, or Allie, or Matthew, or me, and ask, how do I come across to people? Like, what do I not see about myself? You might discover things that are hard. It's the best thing you've ever heard. Because the blind spots that are your hypocrisy that will enable you to turn to Jesus. And receive what is true. So that's his hypocrisy displayed. Second of all, the damage of it. Third, the healing of it. Still, right, the final thing that's that's hanging out here is, okay, what is happening here? Yes, I see the damage of it. Yes, I see the hypocrisy. But just because Ananias refused to repent of his posturing, he dies right there. And then his wife comes after three hours and Peter gives her a chance to repent and she does it and she dies. We don't really see that happening today, right? Honestly. And it's, honestly, if you read your Bible, it's pretty rare in the Bible. So what is happening here? This is a miracle of judgment. And look, if you were with us last week, and I try not to do this because I want you to feel free to come and go and even if you drop in, you can hang with us. But... Last week we saw when Peter does this miracle where he heals by the power of Jesus a man who was born a cripple. And what we said is that miracles aren't just like these party tricks. That miracles are actually something. They are a preview. They are a taste of the day that's to come when Jesus returns in glory and and heals everything. When he repairs everything that's broken. When he restores everything that's fallen. When he, heal, when he heals everything. And so when you see this lame man that can walk, it is saying that day is coming. 
when every tear will be wiped away, when every sickness will be wiped away, when all bodies will be, and souls and bodies will be made well again. And miracles bring the then into the now so that you can see it. Well, the same thing is happening here. But instead of it being an intrusion of the restoration that's to come with Jesus, it's an intrusion of the judgment that's going to come with Jesus. So on that day, right, two things are going to happen. Everything's going to be restored and healed because every bit of evil and sin is going to be judged and done away with. And so what happens here in this miracle is a preview, a movie trailer on the day that's to come of when God's judgment finally purifies this world of all sin. And so what happens is this. At a moment in history, in a specific location in Jerusalem, the one day, someday judgment of God gets brought into the now so that everybody sees it. That kind of makes sense. And did you see everybody's response? Fear. Reverence. They get a sense of their own sin. And it's terrifying. And look, the healing of hypocrisy really does begin here. That I start seeing the severity of my sin. Of my hypocrisy. And I quit pretending about that. That my living the college life, you know, that it's what we all do before I get serious about about the Lord. That that attitude itself is what is seriously dangerous. That I start recognizing that the severity of sin means that even my everyday germane sins are terrifying, will kill you. That that the ways that I just say, well, at least I'm not like that, is the very thing that means you're in danger. Because it all deserves the Lord's judgment. But there is more, right? Because, all right, when I was in college, um, first time I experienced someone that I actually knew who was uh, killed in a car accident by a drunk, drunk driver. Right. Many of you in this room have had something like that happen. And this always happens, right? After a horrifying incident like, this, like that, here's what people start saying. They say, okay, well, after this tragedy, after people see what drunk driving will actually do to people, when people see those facts and feel the weight of it, now people will stop doing it. And you know what happens? Maybe for one or two weeks it kind of stops, but then it just reverts back to normal. We think that simply seeing the facts and that producing fear will change us, and it doesn't. Look, we need true facts, but facts alone do not change us. Because we do what we do, not because of right facts. We do what we do because we love what we love. That's what drives us. And information alone will not change us. We need right information. We need something to change what we love. And just seeing the severity of sin, no matter how much fear-mongering some Christian gets up here and says, well, unless you do this, unless you do this, you'll go to hell... No amount of fear-mongering will change your heart. Something has to change what you love. And what you've got to see is that this isn't the only time that the miracle of judgment actually happened. There's an intrusion of judgment that happens at a specific place 
in a specific time. There's this one day, someday, that the judgment of God, it fell 2,000 years ago on a place right outside of Jerusalem on a cross where God himself in Jesus was being crucified. And there you see the holy and perfect judgment of God. It comes down in its fullness, but it comes down on himself in Jesus. Why? He's the only man who has ever lived who had no hidden darkness. He had no hypocrisy. What's he doing? He's bearing the full judgment of God, not for his sin, but for my hypocrisy. For everybody's hypocrisy who trusts him and repents of it. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ that you see on the one hand God's holy and Severe, we'll say. Loving justice in full. Because when my sin went to Jesus, God's wrath came on Jesus. But at the same time, you see the full mercy, love, and grace of Jesus because God substitutes Himself for me and takes it. And this is what will change your heart, is seeing that's who God is. Infinitely just, but infinitely loving and gracious. And they kiss at the cross. And it's a heavy passage. I know it is, but what this brings out is this truth. That humanity is not divided into the good and the bad. We're all hypocritical. We just are. The question is, is your judgment day, one day, someday in the future, or did your judgment day happen 2,000 years ago on a cross? So that when Jesus comes back, there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Because he took it. My appeal to you tonight is to not get your life together. To just have more integrity tomorrow. It's to believe that the love of God is rich and free for you because it cost him everything. And when you see and believe his love for you on a cross... That begins to change what you love. It just does. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to build a good reputation so that God would like them and other people would respect them. In the gospel, we don't have to do that anymore. We have Jesus. And he gives us his reputation. So look, I'll end with this. This could be any of you, okay? So if I'm about to tell this story about a conversation I have with this student and you think, shoot, you're talking about me. I'm telling you, this is like 30 of y'all, Okay? Where I will be sitting with you and tears will start and you'll say this. I'm just such a hypocrite. Because I say I'm a Christian. I've never told anybody this. But I cut myself at night. Or I look at that every night. Or I'm in over my head with sexual immorality. Or I'm suicidal. Or I'm addicted to people's opinions or drugs. Or fill in the blank. And it is my privilege. Now, I know it's a heavy conversation. I tell you, it is my privilege to look at you and say this. You're not a hypocrite. You know how you know not a hypocrite? Because you're here. And you're talking about it. Which means Jesus is alive. And you're coming into the light. Hypocrisy doesn't repent. Integrity says, this is who I should be. I'm not. 
I'm going to bring it to Jesus. If that gospel is in high gear, I'm telling you, it creates this radical new community where people finally quit pretending. And that's my ending appeal. Are you a hypocrite? Like, join the club. But believe the gospel in this community that says you don't have to fake it with Jesus anymore. And I pray that you don't have to fake it among RUF people anymore. And isn't that attractive? Aren't you tired? Like, aren't you tired of being in a world that just accepts you if you perform? Hear Jesus say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And here's the deal. Jesus does not posture. He has no darkness in it. That is truth. You can trust it. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what is a very heavy and sobering passage. Lord, even amidst it, would you help us by seeing the heaviness of our sin. Man, seeing that you love sinners be able to trust you with our empty hands. Trust you that you can provide what we do not have. Righteousness, forgiveness, mercy. Would you make us, as RUF, a community on campus that just doesn't make sense? Because you don't have to perform anymore to be accepted. But that we're loved by the God of this universe and that enables us to be, to be honest, to be humble, to be repentant. I think that will begin to change this world. Would you do that in your son's name, I pray? Amen.